0: Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, Canada's coffee professor, Dr. Thomas Merritt from Laurentian University, has an update on coffee's benefits and a possible problem involving caffeine and impulse buying. The Globe and Mail's BC real estate reporter, Carrie Gold, looks at both a changing marketplace and the Broadway plan. And health policy analyst Bacchus Berua says BC needs to look at other successful universal systems to help reduce healthcare wait times here. So, let's get started. A couple of headlines. Saw this headline the other day in the Globe and Mail. Uh, The coffee, the headline, coffee delivers health perks, even with some sugar, according to a new study. So I thought to myself, I'd like to talk about this with Dr. Coffee. And I said it to him, and Dr. Merritt said, I'd be happy to come on your program. And then the next day, I saw another headline. Having coffee before shopping may impact what you buy and how much you spend, according to yet another study. So I sent that one to dr coffee and he got right back to me and said i'm good with that one too it's a pleasure to welcome dr thomas merritt a good friend of our program our dr coffee professor of chemistry and biochemistry at my old school laurentian university in sudbury ontario dr merritt thomas good morning sir and welcome back
1: Good morning, Sterling. You sound uh, extra caffeinated today. Well, so I
0: had—it's great to be with you. I had a coffee in the car. As a matter of fact, something I don't usually do. I have one at the house, and then I get to wait till I get to work, and then have another one, which I'm doing right now. But uh, in, a, in anticipation of your visit with us this morning, I had an extra one in the car on the way into work. <laughs> Good to talk to you. Good to have you back with us. Let's talk first of all about the the health benefit stuff, because Thomas, you and I have talked about this. Coffee has gone through fits and starts of popularity and uh, um, uh, varying degrees of benefits to the consumer. It's been bad for you in some uh, low trough points in, in its life cycle, and at other points, it's been really good for you. So now I think we're kind of on a, a back on a good-for-you uh, mode this morning because this article says even with some sugar, uh, there are some benefits, health benefits, that can be derived from coffee. So what sort of benefits?
1: Yeah, so let, let's talk about that. You know, honestly, in, in you know, if you, if you take a moment to think about it, do you, do you really think that coffee has been good for us and bad for us? And and, I, and I'm sure you don't. You know, we, it's our impression. So we think of coffee as being good for us, or we think of coffee as being bad for us. Um, and and I think the fact that this comes up over and over again, I, I was. Doing some background research, and there's a headline uh, op-ed piece from the New York Times in 1981. Coffee is going to kill you, right? Right. Um, yep. And and the editors are you know they they are they're swearing off of coffee uh, because of this really complete study at uh, uh, hospital study looking at mortality rates and coffee drinking, and really showing a significant correlation between how much coffee you drink. And a lower lifespan, mm-hmm. right? And so now we, but then four years later, that study is is reversed and actually is is somewhat debunked. Uh, and so those same editors came back and said, you know, we're we're back on coffee. Mm-hmm. You know, there are very few things in the world that we love as much as as our coffee, and I think that's why this keeps coming back into the news. I, I think the punchline, and, and this is going to go, you know, no matter what the headlines are. It's not killing us nearly as much as many other things that we're doing. And, you know, it's, (laughs) right? I mean, this, this is, honestly, that is the best that you can hope for something. Well, that's, you know, this is.
0: It's Especially a funny way to, add, to look at it, though. But I guess when you, when you go and remember, I do remember those studies back in the 80s when coffee could kill you. And so oh, you yeah. better lay off. And, and, and I mean, they were yeah. pretty they were pretty over the top, pretty apocalyptic sort of forecasts back in those days. But, you know, when you analyze it, low these many years later as to something that is least likely to kill you. I don't know how far yeah. ahead of the ball game we are.
1: Nope. So it, You know, honestly, there, there's basically there is one thing in the world that makes us feel better than coffee that actually isn't bad for you, and I'm 100% behind that, um, and I'm also 100% behind drinking coffee, but it's, it's really just a matter of understanding it's really not that bad for you. Right. The, the, the study, it, it's a great study. It's a really interesting study. Um, it takes advantage of this amazing program in the UK that was started back in like 2009, 2010. They looked at almost 200,000 people. Um, and the, you know, the strength there is that it's a diversity of people. So it, it's all across uh, the United Kingdom, and, and you know it, it, it's trying to look at a diverse population. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that if you look at the amount of coffee that people were reporting that they were consuming that people that drank a moderate amount of black coffee or lightly sweetened coffee were about, had about a 30% lower rate of, of premature death. And, and they, you know, they did the study well, so they factored out things like, like other pieces of the life cycle, diet, exercise, mm-hmm. socioeconomic class, that kind of thing. But, on, but it's still an association study. It's not, a, um, it's not a test. So they didn't give people caffeine or not give people caffeine. So you know, it comes down to what's in the coffee. And, right. and the big things in coffee are caffeine, which is the stimulant. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about that with the shopping feast. Yeah. And then, honestly, about a thousand other things that are in coffee, some of which have what we call antioxidant properties. And so just by being alive, you create these molecules in your body that are stressful. And that's just part of metabolism. You you can't actually have life or metabolism without creating oxidative stress. And there are things called antioxidants that fight that and they're naturally occurring in, in your body and they're they're naturally occurring in some plants, including coffee. Uh huh. And so the idea is these antioxidants in coffee may be prolonging or maybe associated with or you know maybe prolonging lifespan. Life the reason they don't think that caffeine is the, the driving agent in this lifespan study or premature death study is because they got the same result for decaffeinated coffee. Right. And, and that's sort of the cool thing. A lot, of the coffee, a lot of coffee studies, people have looked at these associations, and then they've realized, oh, that's interesting. It actually holds up. So not as many people drink decaffeinated coffee, um, so it's always a smaller sample size. But when they look at that sample size, they often see the same pattern. They're right. like, well, that's, that's interesting. So it's not the caffeine. But it could be something else, and it could just be you know, the kind of people that, that drink coffee, Perfect tend to not dry prematurely and and even with factoring out all of the things no study is perfect you know, and I think that's why things keep coming in and out of the the coffee keeps coming in and out of fashion. popularity.
0: exactly. Now, we've only got a couple of minutes left here, Thomas, and I need sure. to to zoom in on this consumer study, and this is what you you set aside <laughs> caffeine for a moment. We'll come back to that for shopping. Now, this was on the CTV website. Having coffee before shopping may impact what you buy and how much you spend. Uh, what'd you think of that study?
1: So I, I'm 100% behind this study. So I don't know if we've chatted about this, but I collect coffee makers. Uh, and I know that there is a peak in my, hey, I bet that's a new coffee maker I haven't found uh-huh. uh, that accompanies that third espresso in the morning. Um, and so this is a, a different study. This is actually an experimental study that the authors went in and fed people ca- caffeinated or decaffeinated coffee and looked to see what kind of purchases they made. And they did this in stores, and then they did it in the lab with sort of a sample set. And it's smaller. It's, it's 300 people in one study and 200 people. So it's not 200,000. Right,
0: right, but still. Uh,
1: but it's an experimental study. So it's not, you know, tell us about your coffee drinking. Let's follow you through time. They went in and manipulated the situation. And what they found pretty cleanly was that people that were caffeinated tended to spend a little bit more, but also tended to buy a little bit more frivolously. Uh-huh. And I've got at least one ex wife who would tell you that is absolutely the case in my
0: spending <laughs> Spontaneous moments, uh, caffeinated people, uh, and, and uh, consumer environments, uh, uh, sparks fly.
1: Absolutely. Okay, so can we talk about sparks flying for yeah, a
0: second? I've got about 30 seconds. Go for it.
1: For 30 seconds. So one of the interesting things was the type of things that people tended to buy, and these impulse buys, it said fragrancers and massagers. Mm. So one of the things that we know about caffeine is that it absolutely perks up the, the libido. And so it may be that, these people, that that's what these authors were finding, is they're finding these sort of impulse buys around people's, that sort of peak in the sex drive that comes in after that second espresso when they're out shopping. Uh, and I, I thought that was a really fun twist to that study and, and uh, the conclusions they were trying to draw.
0: So, perhaps the takeaway from that part of the study, according to Dr. Thomas Merritt, is not too much coffee before you go shopping. And if you do, be ready to uh, 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 reckon with some unexpected bills uh, a, a few days after your shopping excursion. And the other side of it is basically coffee's good for you again, it's not going to kill you. That pretty much sums it up, Sterling. <laughs> Thomas, great to have you back on the show, sir. It's been forever, and uh, let's not keep it that long until next time. Uh, this is always something that po- folks enjoy uh, hearing about, especially first thing in the morning over a decent cup of coffee as we are enjoying here at the radio station. Thanks for this. Always great to chat with you, Sterling. Take care. Dr. Thomas Merritt joining us from Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario. pleasure to welcome this next guest to the program. I had the pleasure of meeting Carrie at an event a couple of weeks ago and told her, point blank, I'm a fan. I've been reading your stuff for years. Would you consider an appearance on the radio program? And and to my delight, she said, I would absolutely love to. Carrie Gold is the BC real estate reporter for the Globe and Mail. She's been covering this beat for 12 or 13 years and has a pretty good grip on what's going on in Metro Vancouver and the province of British Columbia. Carrie, good morning. Welcome to the program.
2: Sure. Good morning, Sterling. It's actually been 15 years. I just realized
0: that this morning. Oh my gosh! Well, that's see yeah. what happens when you get up early. Well, you, you realize you've been at it longer than you expected to be. So, can we step? We want to talk about the Broadway plan in a little bit here. We'll spend some time on that in a few minutes. And you did a great story in the Globe yesterday about a BC developer freeing up empty rent, rental units for refugees. It's a great story. But if you wouldn't mind, Carrie, can we just take a few minutes and step back and take a look at the big picture? You wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago, says uh, the headline of which Vancouver renters are paying more for living spaces but getting less as shrinkflation grows. Uh, It is said that peak house in Metro Vancouver happened in February, and if you missed it, you missed the peak of the market, and now we're starting to see more uh, properties for sale, and those for sale properties carry lasting longer on market. It's not as insane as it was a couple of months ago.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, things have slowed down a bit. I don't know that prices have come down that much, but, but definitely the market is getting a bit more balanced, and which is a good thing because you don't want people throwing crazy money around. That's,
0: That's right. right. So have have you noticed though? I mean, now, there's there's said to be a, a direct correlation between interest rates and housing prices. As the Bank of Canada and we saw the Fed grow up a 75 basis points a couple of days ago, Bank of Canada expected to do the same on its next available opportunity. Interest rates are definitely going up. Our housing prices. You said you're not seeing much in terms of prices coming off. Do you expect? too, with rising rates to see lower asking prices.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I know interest rates, everybody's talking about how they were kind of blindsided by them uh, increasing so soon. I think the expectation was it would have happened like next year, I think it was. But um, definitely, I think that interest rates are going to have their impact. They're probably not going to be felt just yet. But, you know, people who have a variable rate or people who are, have a, you know, their mortgage is coming due. Uh, it's going to get interesting. I think it, it's going to be a bumpy ride for sure. I, how that affects prices, I mean, it remains to be seen. Uh, yeah, there, there, I, you'd think there would have to be a dip. Right.
0: One of the things that I was reading the comments section after one of your articles in the Globe and Mail and one of the people said the current real estate correction will likely demonstrate that the housing supply is not as dire as it appears. Uh, Is this uh, have we misread housing supply numbers in Canada or is that just one person's opinion that's probably off the mark?
2: yeah I think I saw that comment um there is there are people who believe that actually that this uh i mean there is definitely a crisis people there's an affordability crisis sure. there are people who are having a really tough time in, in Vancouver and in the region and it's it's very sad to see uh, so we do need more affordable housing, but I emphasize the word affordable uh, and, and that is the crux of the argument Do we need more housing of all types or do we need housing this? Uh, local income earners can truly afford, and and that's the debate. That's really what it comes down to. And there are people who say, look, there's tons in the pipeline, tons of supply already. Uh, we've got Jericho, which is a massive project coming up, and we've got Oakridge Park. Uh, we've got Sanoc, which is the Squamish uh, project at Burrard there and Heatherlands. So there, there are quite a few major projects, but. So so yeah, there, there seems to be a lot of supply on its way, and has has this increased supply, you know, really brought prices down? Right, is is the big question, right? And that's what that shrinkflation piece was really about—that you're getting less space for your money, and yet you're not the the prices aren't coming down, and you're actually getting less.
0: And that's. So, that's one right. thing that we've seen Carrie in the last what 10 years and you've been at this for quite a while and you've no doubt observed it year by year as the rooms as the suites get smaller the prices certainly haven't but you know a typical uh condo one bedroom condo in downtown Vancouver is now in, under 600 square feet and they still want over 600,000 bucks for it.
2: Yeah, yeah, I know it's crazy downtown in the West End I mean there uh along Alberni, there's uh 2400 per square foot is the is the price right now and a, one developer told me that's actually conservative so uh- the high end is especially
0: high. You were talking about some of the projects coming on Stream Jericho for example on the west side of Vancouver I, w- I wanted to throw in uh, two locations in Burnaby that are just going absolutely literally through the roof and that's Brentwood and Loheed City out by the uh, Evergreen mm-hmm. Line extension There, up on North Road and lowheed again these are super tall towers Brentwood's got one close to 50 stories uh, and they're, they're not uh, online yet but they're coming on. This is part of the supply you're referring to, right?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, that's a good example. I mean, Burnaby's really stepped it up. They're really adding to the supply, and uh, yeah, they've been they've made they're actually uh, also taking some creative approaches to creating affordability and making use of city-owned lands. I think they have like five or six sites that they have ready for uh, nonprofit, you know, development of affordable housing. So they're, um, yeah, no, they're they're really leading the way in terms of supply, I'd say. They're,
0: are the, are there other municipalities carry that you're aware of that are like minded with Burnaby that have municipal land that they're sitting on that uh, they're considering at least at the council level of uh, dedicating to affordable housing in the future?
2: You know, I, that's a good question. It's something I should look into. I mean, I, Vancouver. I am never clear on why we don't. Well, for one thing, we should never, ever sell off publicly owned land, in my opinion. That's a conclusion I've come to, and, and that's why Little Mountain was so upsetting. Um, as far as city-owned land, uh, there's a, quite a big uh, uh, chunk of land down by Olympic Village to the west, um, and it's about 15 acres, I think, and um, it's right on the water. And I just sort of wonder, why are, we've got a housing crisis. Why aren't we making use of this? Why couldn't we turn that into, say... A fantastic co-op housing uh, development. You know, we could create affordable housing with some publicly owned land. Uh, I think it would be a real shame if, say, that turned into another
0: Olympic Village, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, right? The finance minister, Christian Freeland, made a statement or a speech the other day at the Empire Club in Toronto, and uh, had some kind of financial remedies. That's what the speech was billed at. It turned out to be nothing new—absolutely nothing new—a reannouncement of a lot of stuff from the budget. However, in the speech, Christian Freeland did talk about the government of Canada building affordable housing. The question to you after fifty. 50- years of watching the real estate beat uh is is it the role of government to build housing
2: well yeah i would say for sure housing is a is a human right it's a necessity uh it's become a commodity we we all hear about the financialization of housing uh we're all part of it you know many investors are simply people who own two or three homes sure um, you know, if you you know, institutional investors or you know, they've got their pension plan uh, shareholders. I mean, we're all part of the system of of financialization of housing, but we do have to remember that it's also a right. And the government did. I mean, the federal government did uh, play a huge part and did have a housing program up until the mid '90s. And uh, and the CMHC, you know, I'm pretty sure they were responsible for Little Mountain which was a massive social housing community, right. of, I think 700 people. And today it's sitting pretty much vacant uh, ever since the province sold it off to a developer. And so, um, yeah, the answer to that question is, I, I frankly, I, I, that's the only way I can see us creating affordable housing when land values are so incredibly high. And if people like like in my article about shrinkflation, it was Michael Geller, who's a developer and uh, planner. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he said he he actually tweeted that you know there's this uh, false narrative that we that densification leads to affordability. Densification is great because it means less sprawl and it's better for the environment. However, it does it leave to, lead to affordability. And in Vancouver, uh, that would be pretty difficult. I know many people who don't believe it could
3: because
2: mm. the land values are so high. And, you know, and it makes sense, too. If you look at any property, you know, something, if, if there's going to be a rezoning, if there's any talk of re- an area that's going to be rezoned, well, there's going to be speculation. And when speculators get on board, they drive prices up. And mm-hmm. So once you purchase land for a high, you know, at a premium, Uh, When any factor in construction costs, inflation, interest rates, it's very, it's incredibly expensive to build uh, new construction. Mm -hmm. And so that cost is going to be passed on to the consumer. And so I just don't see it. The more you, the higher densities you build the more valuable they are.
0: Yeah, you were talking about, I need to take a break, but I have to ask you this question before we do. You were talking about investor participation in the economy and so on, and I was talking about those new high-rises going up in places like Burnaby, Brentwood, and and uh, Lougheed and so on, City of Lougheed, they're calling it. Uh, Are investors still going into these new condo buildings and buying a half a dozen like they used to 10 years ago, or is that phase over?
2: You know, I I think it's still happening. I think the investors have, have actually returned. That's what I'm I'm hearing anecdotally. That now I hear it more in the high end, but uh, I'm sure they're in all uh, parts of the market. I mean, people who, because it makes sense. If you want a a good investment, buy real estate. So buy that pre sale or whatever, and rent it out, and you know, and expect your ten to fifteen percent. Increase. I mean, that's sort of been the rule, right? Yeah, mm. And I think that I can't see that. I did a story for the Globe on how one in five homeowners own a second or third or fourth property. I saw that, and, yeah. Yeah, and same in Toronto. So I, I think investor behavior, That I mean, that's just part of our culture. I, I, I'm sure that's still
0: going on. Kerry Gold, who is the B.C. real estate specialist for the Globe and Mail, been covering this beat for 15 years, as it turns out. Kerry, you wrote a great little story yesterday. Uh, our response here in B.C. across Canada to the crisis in Ukraine has been phenomenal. And you found a, a local story. Uh, the headline was B.C. developer freeing up empty rental, rental units for refugees. Tell us more, please.
2: Yeah, that was kind of a nice feel-good story for once. Um, these buildings, uh, there are a lot of buildings, in fact, nobody really knows how many, that are sitting partially vacant, maybe entirely vacant, because of uh, they're stuck in the process of awaiting, you know, permitting, uh, maybe a rezoning application. Mm-hmm. It's just, a, it's an old story. And so they're, yeah, they figured out a way uh, to put uh, these buildings to some use, because when you have a building that's slated for uh, redevelopment, a lot of people will move out and it's, you're not going to be able to rent those units in the, in the interim uh, because why would you move it to a building that's going to be torn down? Sure. And so this is a way to, uh, you know, help refugees who are people who've come here, uh, they have gone through an incredibly stressful journey to get here. And they might not have much money, but or any money, but they're often highly educated, and they just want to get settled and get on with their lives. And so, you know, concert properties uh, joined with uh, this nonprofit and uh, Journey Home, and uh, and also some funding from the Vancouver Foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice little story. It's and a so great story. They haven't housed tons of, of refugee claimants yet, but. You know, West Group has done it as well. Uh, they've got some people in a building in Burnaby. And the buildings there, there are still market rate uh, renters living in the buildings uh, uh, but uh, they do have these empty units coming available. So, so
0: why not fill them up? Even on a temporary basis, a nice uh, landing spot for someone coming out of a war zone and trying to turn their life around. Want to talk about yeah. the Broadway plan? Uh, City Council votes uh, on this, com- this coming Wednesday, the 22nd, 493 pages long. What's your uh, thumbnail so- sketch assessment of the Broadway plan?
2: Well, everybody I talk to agrees that uh, you know density along Broadway is a, a great idea, especially because it's a rapid transit. There's a, it's a subway line.
3: You yeah, can have
2: density there. It's a no-brainer. Uh, what What's more uh, contentious is the density in the surrounding areas. It's kind of a misnomer. Broadway. It's not really a Broadway plan. It's actually going from First Avenue all the way to Sixteenth Avenue, and from Vine in Kitsilano to Clark on the east side. Mm-hmm. So that's 500 city blocks and uh, most of you know a lot of that is like one quarter of that is our renter stock so that's uh, already some really great existing affordable housing for a lot of renters and the worry is that those buildings are going to be under threat of redevelopment and uh, so that that's a huge worry I'd say that's the biggest worry that people have
0: is, is there, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I don't have a lot of time, but, and I'm curious, is there a remedy? For example, if those people who are living in, in desirable rental accommodation right now are concerned that that may be terminated in the, uh, in the name of redevelopment, is there at least some assurance from City Hall that the redevelopment will include those people who are, uh, may be excluded because of all of this?
2: Uh, you mean like? Well, there's the um, the amendment for a tenant uh, protection. Which right. Would be that if you do get uh, evicted, the developer would pay for you to live somewhere else. Like, would top up your rent, your extra rent, and then after three to five years, when the building's ready, would invite you back. Right. And you would be paying the same rent you were paying, or perhaps lower. And I have talked to developers. who find that uh, that could be really problematic. That they're not quite sure how that's going to work. If you have a t- one thing that I'm confused about it is if the tenant lives somewhere else for five years and they don't want to come back, do they have to pay their money the money back for that they were topped up?
0: Yeah, good question. Mm-hmm. Right?
2: Logistically, I don't quite understand it. And also, I think most developers would just say, "Look, I'll just buy you out." I'm sure that would be a preference. Here's X number of dollars, which I think is another option.
0: What's the big um, knock on the Broadway plan? What's the biggest beef against it?
2: It's that. Well, for one thing, in some areas, they're um, talking about two towers per block uh, in, in neighborhoods where, you know, you've got basically a lower density, much lower density. These towers would be 18, 20 stories. Mm-hmm. And one senior, former senior staff, city staffer who worked at City Hall for 25 years said, that's just random urban design. It doesn't make any sense to him. I listened to comments in the urban design panel, which is made up of uh, art, mostly architects and other people. And they said, uh, a few of them said the same thing. It just, uh, usually you don't have that, you don't, it, you just don't have that kind of scattering or that hodgepodge of high density through a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And again, it would change the fabric. The, you know, Kitsilano, Fairview, uh, Mount Pleasant, the neighborhoods that are impacted, they're, you know, very livable Communities and they've got a lot of character and people love living in them and I think that's the big fear is that they will be uh potentially uh, well, greatly impacted by redevelopment.
0: No question about it. Kerry, right. uh, yeah. a pleasure to have you on the program. I'm so glad we bumped into each other a couple of weeks back yeah. at that event and that you were so kind as to agree to join us on, on a future radio program, which turns out to be today. Let's not end it here, though. Let's kind of keep the door open. We love to keep your perspective on BC real estate, especially here in Metro Vancouver uh, as as we go forward. Thanks very much for this this morning. We do appreciate it.
2: You're very welcome. Anytime, Sterling. You take
0: care. You too. Switzerland, the Netherlands, Germany and Australia embrace private insurers and providers as fundamental components to their system as both a partner and pressure valve. This part of an article co-written by our next guest. The headline, BC can reduce healthcare wait times by learning from more successful universal systems. The co-authors Mackenzie Moore and Bacchus Berua. Bacchus Berua joins us. Mr. Barua is Director of Health Policy Studies at the Fraser Institute. Bacchus, good morning and welcome back. It's been a while. Good morning, Sterling. It's so wonderful to be on the show again. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's good to have you. We've uh, here at CKNW uh, got on a bit of a crusade about health care and providers here in BC a month or so ago, and we've decided to continue that uh, scrutiny here on Saturday mornings at this time. And we've had a couple of very interesting guests lately, Bacchus, and it's good of you to join us because this is a point that uh, is being made by quite a number of observers. It isn't necessarily an either-or situation. If you talk to someone about healthcare, particularly someone in the business of healthcare in Canada, about reforming it, they'll go, well, look, either you accept the status quo or the only other option is the healthcare system from hell next door in the United States. And you and your colleague, Mackenzie Moore, are saying, nonsense. That's absurd. There are numerous successful examples of public private partnership. All over the world that bc and other canadian jurisdictions should be paying attention to and learning from and i mentioned a few the netherlands australia uh, germany etc talk to us about what they do that you would like to see done here in bc bacchus well first i, I should really commend you on tackling this issue at,
4: you know as you said for this for this last month healthcare is an incredibly uh, personal topic and it can get um, very, very uh, difficult and emotional very, very quickly. And it's important if we're looking at trying to improve the system to really look at some objective measures. And one of the things that the Fraser Institute has done for, for decades now is look at other countries with universal health care that are performing the same or better than us in order to understand where we can look towards reform. Mm-hmm. And there are actually several other countries with universal health care, despite the way Canada's portrayed as, as a unique uh, unique in its pursuit. There are at least 27 other countries with universal health care. And when we look at performance measures, we do an annual study looking at 48 different indicators of performance. We find that Canada is a remarkably expensive healthcare system, ranking between 2 and 10 out of the 28, depending on which measure you're looking at and depending on age adjustment. But for that money, we're just not getting the resources and the wait times that we should. We have one of the lowest physician to population ratios ranked twenty six out of twenty eight. Mm-hmm. we have one of the lowest um, bed uh, acute care bed to population ratios twenty five out of twenty six, and we certainly have the longest wait times amongst all uh, amongst developed countries where we have data. And the obvious question becomes, okay, well, why is this happening? Why is this money not translating into resources and the sort of wait times that we see in other countries? Yeah, And it comes down to policy differences. Canada is unique not because of our pursuit of universal health care, but because of the way that we do universal health care. And we differ in three very critical ways. The first one you just touched upon, which is our general attitude towards the private sector. You know, in Canada, it's looked as, you know, um, as, as contrary and incompatible. Oh, with and it's
0: illegal healthcare. and they're the enemy and they're counterproductive and they're trying to, to, to undermine the system and on and on it goes.
4: Yeah, you know, most other countries instead embrace the private sector as a partner or a pressure valve in order to deliver on that universal healthcare promise. Because from the patient's perspective, their primary, um, their, their primary interest is to actually get treated. It matters less to a patient, whether it's public or private, it matters more whether they get treated sure. or not. It matters to defenders of the status quo, however, whether it's public or private, and unfortunately, that's the discussion we're stuck in. There are, however, two other very important ways that these other countries um, do universal health care, and it's important to talk about them in the same breadth. I think. The first is how they fund their hospitals. Most of these hospitals are funded according to activity so that money follows the patient. In Canada, again, sort of as a consequence of this uh, single um, government approach, we have what are called global budgets. And when you have a global budget, every patient that comes in is almost as a cost eating into that budget. And so there you end up with the sort of rationing of care that we see today. And the final difference is patient cost sharing. Most of these other countries, including Switzerland, the Netherlands, Germany, Australia, they all expect patients to just share in the directly in the cost of treatment, either through a deductible. So, for example, in the Netherlands, it's the first 380 euros, in Switzerland, it's a coinsurance, 10% of your of your payment. And that's just in order to help people understand that these are scarce resources to be used responsibly. And of course, they are coupled with, you know, very generous safety nets to ensure that these are not financial burdens. The, the product of all of this are countries that spend about the same, sometimes a little bit more like Switzerland, sometimes a little bit less like Australia, but that have far more resources, have universal health care and have much shorter wait times.
0: And one of the other uh, factors that we're learning about Bacchus as we analyze the Canadian approach to healthcare delivery versus those other models that you cite in your article is that in, and you're talking about, for example, Germany, we spend actually more per person than Germany does. And yet their system is far more efficient than ours. And the analysis usually includes the Canadian uh, version is very Top-heavy with with bureaucrats and administrators, a mm. lot of money that is that could be going to hospitals and and physicians and frontline staff is instead being uh, ch- funneled through these this maze of administration.
4: You know, we haven't looked at administrative costs for quite a few years. Um, some of my previous colleagues did, and I'm glad that it that it's that it's um, that it's uh, in the conversation again. But I would. I would still turn back to those three key policies because when you have the right incentives in, when you have signals coming in, you know, correctly from patients to providers, when you have that sort of flexibility, the system starts to adapt and starts to make choices in the best interest of those patients, assuming that you've structured it correctly.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: So, you know, I, excuse me, I'm just uh, my my thoughts a little bit off this morning, um, but you know, if, if you if you have a system that is is rewarding hospitals for delivering a treatment rather than, I'm not saying that that's the case right now, but rather than a system that may be rewarding administrators for reporting on that treatment, Mm -hmm. you'll end up with a better system. And that's why I come back to those three key differences. You know, and and it's interesting because when you look at some of these other countries, it really changes the way you even can think about what universal healthcare is. In Switzerland, for example, they have a universal healthcare system where they simply mandate that everybody has to buy um, but has to buy insurance in a market that includes competitive private insurers. Now, these private insurers are heavily regulated by the government so that they're not discriminating against uh, patients who have pre-existing conditions and things like that. But it's a very, very different system. In Germany, you have a sort of an opt-out system where if you can prove that you, know, you have the wherewithal to kind of take care of yourself, you can opt out of the public system. And in Australia, you have more of a duplicative system where along with the public system, which everybody still has coverage with, you can also get private insurance to to get treated with and in fact a lot of the government schemes in at least the 2000s were actively encouraging patients to take up private insurance because it was actually helping them deliver services in the public system and you know this is just to give you a spectrum because it's it's i think we get in we paint ourselves in a corner when we point to just one country or another country and say, this is the way to do it. Sure. You know, Canada has to figure out its own unique way of doing it, but at least we need access to those palette of options, and unfortunately right now the Canada Health Act really restricts us in what provinces can and cannot do via penalties from the federal government.
0: Right, and of course the uh, the idea would be to take a look at that palette of examples and models internationally and cherry-pick the best practices from the best of them, and apply them to ourselves one very quick final question to you Bacchus because we're almost out of time you did mention something that scares the pants off a lot of consumers in Canada sharing costs here in BC politicians have convinced us it's free remember we used to have to pay 75 bucks a month for basic family coverage that's gone it's free so the idea that you don't have to pony up some actual hard after-tax cash dollars for anything to do with health care is offensive to some Canadians
4: no, I, I think it's very unfortunate and extremely misleading that for several years we've referred to the Canadian healthcare system as free. We pay a significant amount of money for healthcare through our taxes. Sure, it's very, very hard to see, and especially when you even have something like MSP, that was only a fraction of the actual cost that you were paying for healthcare. The average family was actually the average individual currently is actually paying about almost four and a half thousand dollars for health care. The average family is paying upwards of twelve thousand dollars for health care through their taxes. And it's important to remember that because when you talk about it as a free system, there's a tendency to brush away the problems to say, well, at least it's free. That's it's right. Not free. We pay a lot for health care and we should be asking why are we not getting the sort of resources and the sort of lower wait times that other countries are getting for that similar amount why isn't the money translating and i should say it's important before before we sign off it's important to give due credit um you know our healthcare workers have done an amazing job during the last two years to help get through this backlog but unfortunately At the end of that, at the end of that significant effort, though we're through 91.6% off that backlog, there's still approximately 88,000 patients in BC on a waiting list. Mm -hmm. And that actually is 6% lower than the government's official figure said the waiting list was in in, uh, 2019. This is telling us that this is a systemic issue. COVID has exacerbated that problem, but it's not the cause of it. And now that we're getting through COVID, We're still left with that same system that was still not delivering timely access to patients to begin with.
0: Right. Good point, Bacchus. And that's the that's the reason we're still on this case at this time every Saturday morning. If if there's nothing Canadians, 37 million of us have learned from the last two years, it's the vulnerability to be kind of our health care system. It needs some work. And we do appreciate the input that you and Mackenzie have provided this week. Excellent article. B.C. can reduce health care wait times by learning from more successful universal systems. It's in the Vancouver Sun. It's a good read. Uh, Mackenzie Moore, and our guest this morning, Bacchus Berua from the Fraser Institute. Bacchus, great to have you back. Thank you. My pleasure.
4: Have a wonderful morning.
0: Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or listen to us live, six to nine, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.